Hi, everyone. This is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, and this week I'm asking, how you doing? Depending on where you live in this country or the world, you've been experiencing the pandemic for seven to nine months. For families with autism, it's been excruciating. Having their child's routines disrupted, which for many is the only thing that keeps them calm, without any help of in-person therapy has been devastating. Many families, like my friend Feda Almalidi, had to turn their houses into social, into their own learning centers. I encourage you to read the piece that Feda wrote for Stat News. In it, she says, quote, I fully recognize that this pandemic is unprecedented in our lifetime. It affects all areas of life. Multitudes are working diligently to minimize its spread, heal those who are infected, find treatments and vaccines, and provide for our basic needs. At the same time, people like my son need accommodations that go further than what we've seen, unquote. As you know, Feda and her son Muhammad died in a tragic house fire last weekend. Feda died because she ran inside to get Moo, who, until the very end, could not leave the house among all the chaos and sensory overload. Feda was heroic and her story was tragic in so many ways, but there are so many other heroes. There are those that have gone above and beyond to help families with autism during the pandemic. Families that have lived through it and come out the other end. And those that have worked hard to better understand the effects of this pandemic because it will hopefully improve services for those with autism even if even after we're out of this disaster. For example, in France, research showed that just the very presence of kids with profound autism in the hospital for COVID taught hospital workers how to manage the illness. Kids with profound autism were placed in neurodevelopmental units for severe acute behavioral states. It's similar to the neurobehavioral unit at Kennedy Krieger in Baltimore. Not only were they able to manage kids wearing personal protective equipment, isolation, and also behaviors in kids with COVID, they did so at the same time of understanding the effects of the illness on these challenging behaviors. For example, they noted that the kids with autism showed more diarrhea than those from other pediatric cases of COVID. This might be something to note. Also, some symptoms emerged probably because of sensory issues, licking and throwing meals, for example. While there were only 14 cases that they reported, the one with the worst symptoms also showed the longest positive rate, which was over two weeks. That may be something to follow up on. But of course, the physical issues around being infected with COVID are only half the story. For most families, social distancing has been devastating. And this is less about being around friends and family and more about being away from therapists and other care services. In the early days of the pandemic, the only way to reach families was asking them via online or via surveys. Computers and the internet and phones were a lifeline for families. And even though not everyone has access to them, it was the best that could be done early in the pandemic to understand directly how the pandemic was affecting families. Now I hope we can use technology, but not solely rely on it. Researchers and public health officials recognize that the autism and intellectually disabled communities were the most vulnerable, and three countries so far have sought to understand what was happening in those families in the early days. So first, Italy. Some people will say that Italy was one of the worst hit outside China early on. Now, they did lock themselves in pretty well, and families had to seriously isolate, maybe even more so than families in the U.S., I don't know. 
Researchers in Italy surveyed families in the north and asked them how they were doing and also tried to pick out particular factors that conferred risk or resilience. They asked 527 families about 40 questions. In addition to basic demographics and functioning of their children, they asked if they were working. They asked about what was working, what behaviors became more challenging, if they became more challenging, where they got support, and what did they see as the highest priorities. What was useful? Was it school? Was it telehealth? Did they get direct support? What happened during meals, free time, and structured activities? It turns out ASD individuals with pre-existing behavior problems were twice as likely to exhibit more intense behavioral problems during the pandemic than those without pre-existing behavior problems. So they may have worsened during the pandemic. They might have also appeared, but it was more likely that those with behavior problems beforehand had them come back or worsen. Also making things worse was not receiving school support. Interestingly, increasing age was found to be somewhat protective against behavior problems. But since other studies have shown that behavioral problems tend to, but not always, but tend to improve over time anyway, that may be not so surprising. Also, a weird finding was that kids living with a separated or single parent were less likely to exhibit the intense behavioral problems. Now, there's no reason why that may have been the case. In fact, I'd assume the opposite to be true. So this might indicate some reporting bias. Out of those 527 survey respondents, 77% of them took the time to report at least one need to the open response part of the survey. Only a few, the most commonly reported need was for in-home healthcare support followed by center-based healthcare support, loosening quarantine restrictions and ending lockdown. Now, this is the one that they reported, but it's very likely that they had more than one. The U.S. survey I'll talk about later showed that parents had, in fact, more than one need. This may be confusion about the survey. I actually do not think Italian families had fewer issues than U.S. families. The UK asked similar questions, but they also asked them of neurotypical families for comparison. After all, families with neurotypical kids were suffering too. A group in the UK had been using an instrument for a while called the Strengths and Difficulties Questionnaire. So they had data on a separate group of kids before the pandemic. This way they could take their scores and look at the scores of a different group of kids during the pandemic and estimate the effects in and estimate the effects. Again, they were two different group of kids before and after, but it was one way that they could estimate the effects. They also looked at kids with ADHD or AD. They also looked at kids with ASD or ADHD or both, and they compared them to typical kids during the pandemic. If neurotypical kids were doing worse, probably those with ADHD or ASD weren't doing so well anyway. First, almost all the behaviors on this questionnaire were worsened during the pandemic in everyone. Emotional symptoms, conduct problems, hyperactivity and inattention, of course, those were the worst in people with ADHD, and pro-social behavior. Now that, again, that was, was there any difference in kids with neurodevelopmental disabilities? Well, they were affected more so in all these areas, including worsening of peer relationships, the comparison was made during 
This comparison was made to controls during the pandemic and isolation. This comparison was made to the controls during the pandemic and social isolation. They also found that the comorbid ADHD ASD group was really, really impaired with respect to conduct and pro-social behaviors. And interestingly, females with ASD were particularly vulnerable to increased emotional symptoms compared to males. Now, one thing that was lacking in these two studies was a racial and ethnic profile. So researchers in Oregon and California focused on the effects of COVID in those with intellectual disabilities from ethnically diverse backgrounds. They had 77 people participate in the survey, and 59 of those were Hispanic. The goal was not to directly compare their struggles with Caucasian or Black families, but just to let their voices be heard. 59... The number of families that, of Hispanic origin who completed the survey has been a lot higher than other surveys. They said that the most frequent challenge centered around difficulties being at home. Of those who are at home, about 48% said that being stuck at home and uh, being unable to leave the house was the most challenging, followed by things like balancing work, caring for other children, and lack of childcare. Other challenges included those changes in routine, emotionally supporting the whole family, and finding activities to prevent boredom from all their kids. Parents, of course, reported financial concerns, most commonly due to one or both parents losing their job. Parents also expressed dealing with significant challenges relating to their children's developmental services decreasing or stopping and feeling they couldn't meet their child's educational and developmental needs at home. Does this sound like anyone? Of course. They did find some silver linings. However, this was a study that looked at some of the quote-unquote benefits of the pandemic. About 50% said they appreciated being able to spend more time with their family. 13% said there was nothing beneficial. There were no silver linings. I don't blame them. They were also worried about how how long the pandemic was going to last. Now, I wonder if the families in that study had any clue of how long this would actually go on. How did they cope? Almost all families reported positive coping strategies, like establishing routines at home, using behavioral strategies, exercise, meditation, or social support. Now, finally, saving the best for last. And I say that because I had the opportunity to be a part of this amazing project. So, of course, it's the best. Shafali Jesse, Charlotte DiStefano, and Carly Hyde at UCLA worked with the Autism Science Foundation, the Mighty, and the National Institute of Mental Health to ask how families were faring compared to before the pandemic. Now, the f- study focused on those with rare genetic syndromes and neurodevelopmental disorders, which included, but it wasn't specific to ASD. Rare genetic syndromes include things like Angelman syndrome, Phelan McDermott syndrome, DUP15Q syndrome, Rett syndrome, and tubular sclerosis, and there were others. It also included international participants. Overall, 818 people completed the survey. Again, it was cross-sectional one time in April, and the... Again, it was cross-sectional like all the others. It took a group of people, measured one point in time. It was in April, just like all the others. But this time, the questions were posed as changes. What were their changes in ed- educational services, changes to healthcare services? And also, what were resources that the caregivers found most helpful? Kids with rare genetic diseases have emotional and educational needs and social needs, yes, but they also have urgent medical needs. 
Most suffer from not just intellectual disabilities, but seizures, sleep loss, GI problems, and sometimes respiratory problems or other neurological problems. It's not a contest, again, but what happens to those with some of the most profound with some of the most profound symptoms may be a good benchmark for what sorts of needs everyone else has. In the midst of the pandemic, some would say that at the at the midst of this pandemic, which some would say was the lowest point or April or May, 70% of caregivers within the U.S. and 78 outside the U.S. reported their child was no longer receiving at least one therapy or education service. Think about that. All those people lost at least one service. But worse, 30% in the U.S. and 50% outside the U.S. lost all therapy and educational services. 70% of respondents in the U.S. reported needing to visit a healthcare provider during this period and couldn't. Of those, another 70% in the U.S. were able to meet with 70% of the respondents in the U.S. and 58% outside the U.S. reported needing to visit with a healthcare provider during this period. But of those, only 67% in the U.S. actually could. And that was even through telemedicine. The highest telemedicine rates among the highest, the, the highest telemedicine rates were visits with neurologists and general practitioners. 51% of respondents in the U.S. said that they were unable to see at least one of their healthcare providers when needed. Okay, so let's put that together. Only 67% in the U.S. were, compl- were able to com- meet. Okay, let's, let's re, all right, let's rethink this. Only 67% of families in the U.S. were able to meet with doctors when they needed it. Even through telemedicine, that's completely unacceptable. There were differences in the type of services lost. They range from physical therapy to occupational therapy to school and education, ABA, social skills, recreation, psychiatry, psychology, gastroenterology, and other subspecialties. I'm not going to sit here and recite statistics for all these different areas, but the loss was anywhere between 20% for those rare subspecialties to 40% for academics, and up to 90% for recreational activities with things like social skills and physical therapy in between. 70% said they needed to go to a doctor during the crisis and they could not. Medical care is especially needed for this group. So, in fact, what did they need? Most of them said they needed more meds, like three months or six months of supply at a time rather than just one month. Also, they needed reminders to administer or refill meds. They actually, some of them were involved in a clinical trial and needed to get back in. They needed assessment and monitoring new meds. They would have loved home delivery of meds and, of course, respite care. This makes sense, right? Well, what helped? Well, only 14% of families felt that telehealth and teleeducation was, quote, not at all helpful. So that leaves about 80%, so that leaves about 86% thinking that it was worth something. It was helpful in some way. It may not have helped everything, but families said they actually wanted more telehealth and teleeducation, not less. A very small minority reported continuing to receive in-person help, 
So the rest of them, so for the rest of us, telehealth is needed to expand. So what should happen? Well, the author suggests that some critical next steps include improving delivery and quality of telehealth, particularly to under-resourced and diverse communities who may not have been receiving help anyway, and continuing to educate providers on the most effective strategies to deliver care remotely. Now, even as regions slowly resume in-person educational and behavioral therapy, those unable to safely provide these services may want to consider enhancing programs that support in-home aids or design telehealth models to better suit edu- better suited or design telehealth delivery models to support children with IDDs such as shorter, more frequent sessions or direct coaching of caregivers. Now, your first question may be, if we're coming out of this pandemic, why would anyone care? Well, first of all, who says we won't see another wave? And more importantly, is there anything scientists have learned about helping families during social distancing that can be used? Well, of course. We need to further study telehealth, especially for families in remote regions or those who can't access in-person care on a regular basis anyway. As Dr. Jesse pointed out, maybe these services can help those across the spectrum at different points. There was way too little research on things like telehealth before this, and I hope that changes now. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next week.